Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 123. The Packers fell into the Admiral Akbar game. We were worried about it on Friday's podcast. I was worried about it on the air on Monday. And all of that worrying came to fruition on Monday Night Football. You got ominous feelings at the beginning of that game. The vibes were off. The team was off. Trying too hard. Playing stupid. Got it together a little bit late. Giants desperately tried to give them a Christmas present, and the Packers said, no thank you. We do not need anything this year. We'll break it all down. A 24-22 loss at the hands of Tommy DeVito and the New York football Giants. We'll talk a little bit about the Bucs. I was flipping between the two games last night. Neither one of them really made me feel great. Bucks did get a win in overtime against the Bulls, 133-129. I do want to do a quick tidbit, too, about the Shohei Otani contract at the end of the podcast as well. Crazy numbers. And then even more crazy, the way he is deferring money over the course of the next 10 years. That news came out yesterday. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin, record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, face hit the center! Snap. He looks, he throws, it's and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, on a tentacle foul, throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Before we get into all of this Packer Giants stuff, I had a buddy, my buddy Nick texted me this to the group, and it was all over Twitter too. Coming to America, one of the great movies ever. I have not seen this movie in a long, long time. I totally forgot about the Packer-Giant reference in this movie after the Giants kicked their game-winning field goal last night against the soft Joe Barry defense, the 10-ply Joe Barry defense. This video made the rounds, and it did almost make me feel better in a weird way for a little bit. Sir, I was wondering, did you happen to catch the professional football contest on television last night? No, I didn't. Oh, it was most exhilarating. The Giants of New York took on the Packers of Green Bay. And in the end, the Giants triumphed by kicking an oblong ball made of pigskin to a big H. It was a most ripping victory. That made me feel a little bit better. They made a second one, correct? There's another one out there. I think it was pandemic year when we were all locked inside of our houses for eight months in a row. I'm almost certain they made a second one, and it was maybe straight to a streaming service, The what is now, what is today's version of straight to VHS. Remember that back in the 80s and 90s? A straight to VHS, a gene pick, straight to VHS. I'm pretty sure it was an Amazon Prime original they followed it up with. I never saw the second Coming to America. That reference did make me feel a little bit better, though, slightly better. This is what we were worried about. This was the exact scenario Packer fans were concerned about, rightfully so. 
the October Packers showed up. This was the Packer team that played against Vegas. This was the Packer team that played against the Broncos and kind of played against the Vikings, maybe a little bit better than that Vikings game or the Vegas game. This was a, this was like the Bronco game where they lost by two points, had a chance to maybe steal one at the end that they didn't deserve to win. The October Packers and October Jordan Love showed up. With a young team, we went over it ad nauseum on Friday's podcast, with a young team, still the youngest team in the league. That's not going to change this year. You worry about all the publicity they were getting. Three-game winning streak. They beat the Chargers as underdogs. They go on a short week with an injury list a mile long and beat the Lions in Detroit on Thanksgiving Day as a heavy underdog in prime time against the reigning Super Bowl champions and Patrick Mahomes. They get a win there as pretty heavy touchdown underdogs. All of a sudden, there's a national conversation, sports conversation happening about the Packers again. The resurgence, now the offensive line is playing better, and Jordan Love is looking better. Eight touchdowns, no picks in that three-game stretch, quarterback rating over 115. Everything seems to be getting progressively better every week. And now you end up in this five-game run that started last night, the soft part of their schedule. If you can take care of business, you should be able to solidify a playoff spot, and that can still happen. We'll talk about that when we try to end this on a positive note. We're going to try and land this plane on a positive note by the end of this. It may take us 25 minutes to get there, but we're going to try to land it on a positive note because really not much changed in the playoff picture. You've got this soft part of your schedule now, though. Five games where you figured you were going to be favored, and that started last night. Almost touchdown favorites, and I don't care who you're playing when you are a young team and you are not accustomed to being a touchdown or just short of a touchdown favorite on the road, it's Monday night football, prime time, the lights are bright, the Giants have nothing to lose, Tommy DeVito has nothing to lose and everything to gain, so you're playing a team like that. The Giants almost played last night the way the Packers played against the Lions and the Chiefs where they were the heavy underdog, and they really had nothing to lose, so they played carefree in a way. Giants sort of played that way last night. This is the next hurdle. For a very young team, can you take care of business in games you are expected to win? And last night, you just got a bad feeling right out of the gate. That opening drive where there were mistakes and Jordan Love was errant for the first time in quite some time. His accuracy had been getting so much better during the three-game winning streak. He looked more on those first two drives like he had earlier in the year, not quite connecting with guys, and guys were open on third downs. You punt the ball away, and then it was just mistake after mistake after mistake, and it was a total team effort. We can break it all down every phase if you want, but it was a total team effort in the failure. This was a true team loss where the offense missed a lot of plays. The play calling was suspect in some ways. The offensive line regressed too. Jordan Love will always be topic A, B, and C. And when you lose a game like this, the attention is on the quarterback, and he gets all the headlines when they're winning games like they were against the Lions and Chiefs, and he's going to get a lot of the flack now because of the way they played. Everybody took a step back. One big part of the reason Jordan Love had been playing so much better is he was getting time. That young offensive line, which was a disaster in some of those games. Remember what Max Crosby did to them in that Raiders game? Broncos got after him with their front seven. The Vikings were living in Jordan Love's kitchen. We talked about it on the podcast after those losses that one of the things they have to get figured out is a way to get Jordan Love more time. He doesn't have the weapons, or he didn't when we were discussing it at the time. He didn't have the experienced weapons. He was not experienced, and his offensive line was giving him no time. 
Well, it's no secret that Jordan Love started playing better when the offensive line started playing better, and that started against the Chargers. The offensive line gave up a ton of pressure last night. You do have to kind of tip your cap to Wink Martindale, too, which is an all-time. That is a Hall of Fame defensive coordinator name, Wink Martindale. You are born to be a defensive coordinator in the NFL with the name Wink Martindale. He blitzed him. They blitzed. I think Joe Buck said at the end of the broadcast, they blitzed him 58 or 60% of the time. And clearly their goal was just to get in his face and put pressure on him, not give him time to make decisions. That was effective all night. The Packer offensive line just didn't play that well last night, and Jordan Love was underdressed for a lot of the game. That doesn't excuse all of the inaccuracies and the two turnovers that he had. That fumble, too. He has a fumble and an interception. The interception was real ugly. The fumble on that play call, it looked like, what was it, third and two? It looked like if Jordan Love just stayed outside, Tucker Craft had his block. When that play started to develop and he was heading to the outside, I thought there's no way he's not going to get a first down, just the way everything was setting up. And then for some reason, he cut back to the inside. And I thought, what are you doing? Why are you cutting back inside? And then he fumbles the ball. Couple of turnovers in there as well, but the giant defense was putting pressure on him throughout the game. And to me, the play calling too. I I don't know what Matt LaFleur was doing with that Jaden Reed reverse all game long. How many times? It was effective in the first quarter because the Giants were not setting the edge. Packers noticed that or saw it in film during the course of the week. They went to it. It worked once. It worked on the touchdown run for Jaden Reed. It worked less and less and less as the game went on, and they went to it eight or nine times during the course of the game, it felt like. And in the biggest moment, or arguably one of the biggest moments of the game, the two-point conversion at the end, they go to it again, and it's stuffed. The play calling was not that good. The offensive line was not that good. Jordan Love was not that accurate for 85% of the game. And when he was accurate, you had the Romeo Dobbs double catch where Jordan Love finally threw a good ball. And Troy Aikman said on the broadcast, well, he finally put one on the numbers. And Romeo Dobbs does a double catch and doesn't have possession as he's going out of bounds. The other great throw he had was the Jaden Reed end zone throw where Reed had no idea where he was supposed to be. That was a dime. If Reed runs that route correctly, you would hope that would have ended in a touchdown. They were just totally out of sync, and you could tell. You could tell right from the beginning it'll be a miracle if they're able to escape with this win based on the way they're playing. You could feel the trap game unfolding in front of your eyes. They did have that halftime lead, 10-7, to and I did think at halftime, well, you couldn't have played much worse, and you actually have a lead. Can you find some way to put a couple of drives together and actually get this done. And then the same stuff, the same problems happen in the third quarter, which is generally a good quarter for this team. Even when they were bad at the beginning of the year, the third quarter was always good. The defense got a stop to begin that quarter, and then you had the Keyshawn-Nixon fumble. That was the other phase. The offense was uneven most of the night until that final drive, really. And special teams were bad. Defense was bad. Special teams, I don't know what you do at this point. It is clear this team maybe sold its soul to get Desmond Howard in 1996. And the deal they made, the pact that Bob Harlan made back then, was with the football devil. And he said, if you give us this kick returner to put us over the top as a Super Bowl champion team, we will pay our debt over the course of 40 or 45 years of bad special teams play. That's the only explanation at this point. It's been so bad for so long. You bring in Rich Basaccia, make him the highest paid special teams coach in the league, and Basaccia does not accept the job if he doesn't have the guarantee, and we've been over this, that the Packers are actually going to go out of their way to sign players specifically for special teams because the MO for the Packers before Basaccia got here 
was to draft for whatever scheme offensively, whatever scheme defensively, and then the leftovers, basically, the guys who aren't going to play every down on defense or every down on offense, they're going to have to figure out a way to stick on this team by playing well on special teams. Bisaccia, when he came in, said, that's not how we're going to do it if I'm taking this job. You need to sign some guys that have experience as special teams gunners, punters, whatever, that are specifically catered to being a special teams player. And they did that. And they they signed him. They paid him the most money of any special teams coordinator in the NFL. They went and got him the guys that he felt like he needed. This is still the worst special teams unit in the league. The Packers special teams are one of those rare things in the world. And there aren't many where you could throw unlimited money at it and it just does not seem to get better. I don't know what the short list of things like that are in this universe. You just, any amount, they've tried. They've tried to throw any amount of money at it, and it just does not get better. Looking back to last night, three penalties on the special teams. You had the Keyshawn Nixon fumble, which I don't know what he was doing there. When he muffed it originally, he had the chance just to fall on it, just sit on it, and take your licks. I mean, I don't even think he lost any yardage, really, after he muffed it. He was basically right where he was standing. He fell on the ball and then tried to pick it up and run again. He never had it. Popped out of his hands. Turns the ball over. That leads directly to a Tommy DeVito touchdown pass. So you have the fumble, and that gives up seven points. And it gives all the momentum to New York. That was that opening drive of the third quarter where your defense got to stop early. You were getting the ball back. You were up by three. Bingo, bango, Keyshawn Nixon fumble. Giants have the momentum. They go whatever it was, 35 or 40 yards, and they get that touchdown, get in front, and gain control of the game for the time being when they took that 14-10 to 10 lead. You had the Nixon fumble. You had an Anders Carlson missed field goal. He did make a couple, two of three, missed one. But you factor in the three missed points on the field goal and the seven points essentially you give up because Keyshawn Nixon muffed that punt and then tried to get up and run with it. It's 10 points given up by special teams. This is like the 2021. I forget that guy's name even. Mo Drayton, was that his name? It's like 2021 all over again. I cannot believe they went out of their way to hire a special teams guru as a coach and get him the players he needed, and we still deal with this week in, week out with penalties and turnovers and missed kicks. It's crazy. That phase was bad. And then to round it out, the third phase, Joe Barry's defense. I feel like such an idiot for being on this podcast. It was either Monday last week or Friday. I think it was Monday coming off the win. And we were talking about how they were a top 10 scoring defense, the number nine scoring defense in the league in terms of points given up per game. Remember I said, well, isn't that all that really matters? You know, you got these DVOA measurements, yards given up per play, yards given up in a game, rushing yards, passing yards, whatever. All that matters is the points you're giving up, right? That's what we said. I don't know if that's true necessarily. I just can't wrap my mind around how good they made Tommy DeVito look yesterday. And look. Tommy DeVito's a fun story. I do want to ask if anybody out there listening right now, if you have Italian heritage, I do not have Italian heritage. That is a big part, the largest part of the Tommy DeVito storyline. The fact that he grew up in that area. He's now quarterbacking his hometown team at the professional level. He still lives at home with his parents and his big Italian family. And his mom's making him chicken parms. And his nickname is Tommy Cutlets. And they cut to the crowd yesterday. How about his agent? That agent that they had, that had to be a plant. That cannot be a real person. That was central casting from the Sopranos. They showed him before the game. And that's the first time I had a bad feeling about last night's game. I already had some bad feelings going into it. Then I saw that. And then he was sitting with his family during the game. And they showed the kissing and the, you know, the the Italian where they put their, oh, the nice, every time he made a nice play, I don't even know what you call that. 
It really felt like they were steering into that a little too much, almost like the family guy, bippity-boppity. Ah, uh, scusi. Babbity-boopy. Que cosa? Peter, what are you doing? Speaking Italian. <laughs> Babbity-boopy. If I was Italian, I don't know how I'd feel about that. I kind of think the story is interesting or fun in some ways, but they leaned into it so much. I started to think if I had Italian heritage, it almost feels like they're they're making fun of me. Are you making fun of me? Am I a joke to you? I don't know. I'd have to get somebody with a real true rich Italian heritage to tell me whether or not that was a little too much or a little too much on the nose. Anyway. Tommy DeVito, third-string quarterback, and he's made some plays. What do you have, seven touchdowns and two or three picks on his ledger going into last night? He's made some plays. He had a decent college career. But Joe Barry just makes these guys look like Pro Bowl quarterbacks. What I couldn't understand last night, some of it is execution on the field. It looked like they got some pressure last night. The Giants' offensive line is by almost every metric the worst or second-to-worst offensive line in the league. Going into the game, knowing that, you thought, okay, With a third-string quarterback and a bad offensive line and Saquon Barkley, you know they're going to give the ball to Saquon Barkley. So sell out against the run, put some pressure on this kid, and if he starts to beat you through the air, adjust, but sell out with a front seven, an aggressive package, blitzing. They didn't do any of that last night. The Giants have a terrible offensive line, and it's almost like the Packers went out of their way not to put any blitz packages together or to give them any kind of unique looks. And when they did get pressure, they got so far upfield. I don't know if that's Joe Barry's fault necessarily or just the players not playing smart in the moment. When they would get a little pressure on Tommy DeVito, what happened all night? They would get so far upfield that all DeVito had to do was step up three steps in the pocket, and he'd have nine or ten yards in front of him where he could take off. The guy had nine carries for 72 yards last night. They made Tommy DeVito look like Randall Cunningham. Guys, you have to maintain some discipline or close those gaps of the edge rushers. Rashawn Gary, where was Rashawn Gary yesterday? He just signed the $100-plus million contract, and he's had some good games since then. He had that three-sack game a couple of weeks ago. It's not like he's been a total ghost. Where was he last night? You expected a guy like Rashawn Gary to feast on this offensive line. Every time they got a little pressure on him, the Packer front seven got so far upfield and carried away that all DeVito had to do was step up into a clear pocket, and he could take off and almost always picked up positive yards in those situations. The Packers didn't record a single sack yesterday. Not a single sack against the league's worst offensive line. And the cherry on top was the final drive of the game. The Packers finally, finally had something good happen for them with the Saquon Barkley fumble, which was manna from the heavens. Saquon Barkley does not fumble the ball. For him not only to fumble the ball, but to fumble it in that instance where if he just falls over and they touch him, what would they have needed then? One more first down or two more first downs and the game would have been over? It felt like when he was in the clear there, that game was over. And he gives you this gift, this Christmas ham, literally. And the offense actually put together a decent short field drive after that. Jordan Love made some of his best throws on that final drive. His three best throws of the day were on that final drive. The pass to Romeo Dobbs, which Dobbs couldn't get his second foot down. That was on the money, though, and really the only place he could have thrown that ball. The second throw to Malik Heath should have been a touchdown. I can't believe they reviewed that, and he got three feet down, and they didn't call a touchdown. Anyway, you knew as soon as it went to replay, there was no chance they were going to give him the touchdown. That was right on the money. And then the eventual actual touchdown pass to Malik Heath was also on the money. Great throw, great catch. He put it in only one spot, only the spot where Heath could get it. 
and Heath made a fantastic catch on a fantastic throw from Jordan Love. So you finally get in front. They call that ridiculous Jaden Reed reverse again on the two-point conversion. Don't get it because, of course, because it was like the ninth time they went to that, and the Giants were ready for it. It stays a one-point game, and it's, what, a minute 30 left, and the Giants have two timeouts. This is how bad the Joe Barry defense was in this final drive. When you looked at the situation, okay, we're up 22-21, a minute 30, a third-string quarterback, and they have two timeouts. The Packer defense was so bad on this drive and strategically, the Giants didn't have to use a timeout. They got down the field so quickly and so efficiently, they didn't have to use either of their timeouts in that situation down late with the ball having to go 40 yards to get in field goal range. They didn't have to use either of their timeouts. Right away you knew it was bad when on the first couple of catches you're sitting back in an 8-yard zone and they caught one in the flat 10-yard zone. 10-yard zone again on the catch that basically decided the game that got them, what, inside the 30-yard line? It was like Joe Barry was calling defensive plays as if he were up a touchdown. Joe, do you know the score? Joe, the score is 22-21. It is not 28-21. It's not 29-21. I cannot fathom being a defensive coordinator. And look, my experience comes from playing Madden. I, I engage eight all the time. That was basically the only play I called, engage eight. Put pressure on them. I get that that's not a sound strategy for an actual real-life NFL game. I cannot fathom being in that situation where you're only up a point and you know a field goal beats you sitting in as soft a zone as they were in. That was baby food 10-ply soft. What are we doing, Joe? You are only up by a point. They basically did the Lombada down the field and got in field goal range. And then it was big old Randy Bullock. Randy! He comes on. At that point, I am praying. Can we get a block kick? Could this special teams unit redeem itself a little bit here with a block kick to win the game? Nope. 36 or 37 yarder or whatever it was. Ends up being the walk-off and the Giants get a 24-22 win. Now look, the Packers did not deserve to win this game. It sucks because it looked like they were going to steal it after the Barkley fumble and you get the great field position and they finally put together a decent offensive drive and Love's starting to make the throws that we've seen him make in the past three weeks. They get that touchdown pass to Malik Heath and I'm thinking to myself, like a lot of Packer fans are, oh my God, are we going to steal this game? Are they going to actually get away with theft here and steal this win and get to seven and six? And then the Giants just march right down the field and get the field goal. And as disappointing as it was when that kick split the uprights, I did think in the next breath in my brain, they didn't deserve to win that game. The Packers played poorly for 85% of the game. They played poorly in all three phases. Every single phase of the game yesterday was not good. Despite all of that, they somehow got a lead late, but they never deserved to win that game. That The better team, the team that played the more complete game, that wanted it more, that's the team that won the game yesterday, and it comes at the expense of the Packers and falling back under 500. Did not pass their first test. As a young team now trying to win games you're expected to win, that was an unequivocal fail last night where they just slept walk through 85 to 90% of that game, came to life a little bit late, and that was almost enough. That was almost enough to get the win but had one last letdown from the defense at the end as the Giants get a 24-22 win. Tommy DeVito had a quarterback rating of 114. He put together, what, 230 or 240 total yards. Saquon had a decent game. They did kind of keep him under wraps in the early part of the game in the first half. Ultimately, though, the Giants rushed for 209 yards on 34 carries, 6.1 yards a carry. When you have a third-string quarterback 
and really no wide receiver weapons to speak of. The only known commodity on that giant offense is Saquon Barkley in the running game. And you still give up 209 yards and 6.1 yards per game. Matt LaFleur, to his credit in the postgame, seemed more frustrated with Joe Barry than we've seen him. I don't know if that's going to lead to a change. I think there's a 0% chance that anything changes this year. Maybe the accumulation of these mistakes over the course of the past few weeks, especially last night, maybe that leads to a change in the offseason. I don't think anything's going to change this year. His tone was as frustrated as I've heard him be, Matt LaFleur, with that Joe Barry defense, basically saying it was bad football. When they asked him about the last drive, he just said, there's no reason we should have been that soft. There's no reason we should have been 8 to 10 yards off of somebody. And it was bad football. Bad ball. I think that was his actual quote. It's bad ball. With the loss, the Packers sit at 6 and 7. Now, should we get to some good news? Here's some good news. We'll spin zone a little bit for you. The Packer loss was not the worst loss of the night, by the way. The, the worst loss of the night on the dual Monday Night Football broadcast, basically, where two games were going out at the same time. By the way, hey, ESPN or ABC, we don't need a split screen when these things are happening. It's 2023. If I have any need to know about what's going on in the other game, in this case, the Dolphins-Titans game, if I've got money on that game, if I've got fantasy implications in that game, I am finding a way to consume that game, whether it be a game cast on my phone, a second TV, a tablet that's streaming it on some other service. You do not need to go split screen. How many times did they go split screen last night? And then you're looking at a 19-inch screen with the Packer game on it. I don't care about the Titans-Dolphins game at all. I don't know why they continue to do that. In 1994, where we didn't have access to everything and you were actually reliant on the score ticker on the bottom of the screen to give you updates on stats and who was winning what game, in that era, if you had two Monday Night Games going on simultaneously, okay, then maybe I can see popping in here and there with a picture-in-picture. I do not need that in 2023. I had nothing going in that Titans-Dolphins game. I guarantee you 0% of the people watching the Packer-Giants game, whether they be Giants fans or Packer fans or gamblers or whatever, needed to have a split screen with the other game going on. That was the worst loss of the night, though. It does kind of show you in the NFL, as bummed out as we are that the Packers lost, this is still a super young team trying to figure out how to win now when you're expected to win. On the other game, you had Miami who are battling for the number one seed in the AFC as the best team in that conference at home against a 4-8 Titans team with a rookie quarterback, Giants 4-8 with a third-string quarterback, and the Dolphins had a 13-point lead, right? A two-touchdown lead with three minutes left in that game, and they coughed it up, and the Titans won 28-27. With that happening at the same time, it does give you a bit of solace as a Packer fan when you see one of the better teams in the league, and they were at home. Packers were on the road. Dolphins at home against a 4-8 team, coughing one up. It just shows you in the NFL, this is what they're built on. They're built on parity. They're built on the unexpected. That's how they make their money. That's how Vegas makes its money. When you think something's a mortal lock, it never is. That was the worst loss of the night. Also, regardless of the outcome last night, nothing changed in the playoff conversation. The Packers went into last night as the seventh seed. If the playoffs started yesterday, they would have been the seventh seed in the NFC that is the exact same scenario leaving it. Now, you had a chance to give yourself some space. If you win, you sit at 7-6, and six, and then you've got that host of teams at 6-7 and seven behind you. With the loss, they are 6-7. and seven. The Rams are 6-7. and seven. The Falcons are 6-7. and seven. Who else? There's some other team in there, too. The Saints are 6-7. and seven. And with the four-way tie, the Packers actually had the tiebreaker there. I saw some people on Packer Twitter trying to figure out how the Falcons would not have been past Green Bay because they lost the head-to-head to Atlanta. That is true. 
if it were just a straight-up tie between Atlanta and Green Bay, Atlanta would be in. But because it's a four-team tie, other things come into play, and the Packers have wins against the Rams and the Saints, two of the other teams in that four-team tie. So, going into the night, the Packers had a 69% chance to make the playoffs. They have a 55% chance coming out of last night. However, nothing changes. They went into last night as the seven seed in control of their own playoff destiny. They leave last night as the seven seed in control of their own playoff destiny. This was also last night. Then this is another 2008 comparison. I know we've used this throughout the podcast throughout the season, and you see it everywhere you go on Packer Twitter comparing this year to the 2008 season, the first Aaron Rodgers starter year. The similarities are starting to get kind of eerie, though. Last night was the fifth loss, five of their seven losses this year. The fifth loss, four points or fewer. In 2008, they had six losses in a 6-10 and year, six losses of four points or fewer. This one had the feel of a 2008 game. 2008, there were a lot of instances where Aaron Rodgers would get it together at the end of a game and get a touchdown on the board but leave a little too much time, and the Packer defense would give up a lead with a late field goal or a late touchdown. Exactly how it played out last night. The similarities between those two seasons are striking. I know people are getting sick of that comparison, and I get it like we talked about way back, five or six weeks ago. In many ways, it's apples to oranges, but they do remind you so much of that team, especially with the amount of close losses that they've had. Five of their seven losses this year by four points or fewer. But the biggest spin zone is nothing has changed. Now, coming out of this game, There are more injury concerns. Already you did not have Aaron Jones last night. Jair Alexander, I I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know what's going on there. There feels like there's more going on than just an injury. His post-game pressers have been weird. His post-practice pressers have been weird. There are rumors that him and Matt LaFleur are not seeing eye-to-eye or not getting along. At the end of the day, talent should win out, and you want an all-pro corner out there. I don't know what's happening there. He's practicing all week. He's not playing. Something is going on. They're not IRing him. Something is going on there. You were without Jair. You were without Aaron Jones. Of course, you're not going to have Bakhtiari the rest of the year. Who else were they without? Quay Walker yesterday. Coming out of the game, more tough wide receiver injury news when you are already without Christian Watson. And they did miss him last night. Dontavian Wicks had an ankle injury. And I guess somebody in the Packer locker room, some reporter said that she talked to Dontavian Wicks. And her tweet was, how she asked him how Wicks's how his ankle was, and Wicks says, I bleeped up my ankle. <laughs> so that doesn't sound good. I don't know. That's not an official diagnosis, but I, I don't like the sound of it. I don't like the sound of that. Like a low flow shower head. I don't like the sound of that. He has an ankle injury. Jaden Reed, who had eight catches, limited yards. He did have the touchdown, and they tried to run him on that reverse a million times. He was being evaluated for a concussion. You are now looking at a four-game stretch where, again, well, I don't know if they'll be – yeah, they'll be favored. They're the home team. They'll be favored against Tampa Bay on Sunday. It's a short week now, and you will be favored at home against the current NFC South leaders in that division at 6-7 and seven Tampa Bay. You are looking at this game, though, now where you're probably not going to have Aaron Jones. You're probably not going to have Christian Watson. And now Dontavian Wicks and Jaden Reed are question marks. We love this young wide receiving crew this team is going to grow together and that unit's going to grow together and be formidable they already kind of are in some ways they're going to be even more formidable in the next two to three years it does hurt though you are really testing the depth there's a chance you go into Sunday's game against Tampa without Reed without Watson without Wicks you're not going to have Musgrave back and they're going to be leaning on Romeo Dobbs and Malik Heath 
And who else? <laughs> I don't even know. Samari Touré, we saw some of him last night. He almost had a nice touchdown catch. Love missed that one. Love had Touré, had a step on his defender, and Love was probably a tick too late, two-tenths of a second too late on that throw and put a little too much air under it. Otherwise, that would have been a touchdown. I guess he's a guy who's going to probably have to play a bigger role on Sunday. The injury list and how it continues to grow is concerning as we now enter the final four games of the year. Packers, though, are in control of their playoff destiny. We'll follow the injury report. It'll come out on Wednesday and then, of course, on Thursday, and we'll see where we're at heading into the weekend. That's next up, though. Do we have a line on this game? I would imagine it's just the home field three points, wouldn't you? Week 15. Oh, this is the first week we get Saturday games. We've entered that part of the schedule. We have a Thursday game. We have three Saturday games. Oh, they're not too bad either. Vikings-Bengals at noon on Saturday. Steelers-Colts at 3.30. And Broncos-Lions at 7.15. It is always, what, the third or fourth last week when we start to get that little slate of Saturday games. Buccaneers and Packers in Green Bay. Green Bay opening as three-and-a-half-point favorites on Sunday. Now, every game is huge. If you're thinking playoffs, and you may as well be because – at this point, you're going to win at least a few more games, and the draft pick is going to be 13 or 14 or 15 regardless. You're not really vying for a whole lot of draft stock at this point. That's the that This is the next big one. It's a big one. They're all big ones now. You've got Tampa at home, then you're in Carolina, the one-win Panthers, which already I'm a little worried about the same way I was worried about last night. That's on Christmas Eve. Then you're in Minnesota before you wrap up at home against Suddenly Hot Bears team, and the Bears are going to be – on the in-the-hunt graphic, you would think. They weren't last night, but I would assume they will be. They're only a game out at 5-8, and eight, and the Giants are only a game out now. They're 5-8. and eight. They're only a game back of that final spot in the NFC. That is next up, though. Tampa Bay in Green Bay on Sunday at noon. Maybe just getting back at Lambeau Field will do them some good. I saw some speculation from Packer beat writers that the wind was affecting some of Jordan's throws early. Maybe. It didn't seem like it was that bad. Or the turf, the turf at MetLife, as David Bakhtiari and Aaron Rodgers can attest to. The footing isn't the best. Maybe that was impacting some of those throws. He just looked like he was forcing it. He looked like a young player or a young quarterback who had read maybe a little bit about how much better he was looking and how much better the team was looking, and it just looked like he was trying too hard to be too precise and to make a point on national TV. Maybe you learn from that now and you get back into the rhythm we saw them in the three games prior to Monday night starting this weekend against Tampa Bay. All right, let's talk about the Bucks really quickly. Kind of another ugly game. They were able to dig out the win last night. Bulls at Fiserv Forum. No Zach Levine. They did have DeMar DeRozan back. Remember, the Bucks lost in Chicago a week ago or two weeks ago? I think it was a week and a half ago. And that was a game where the Bulls didn't have DeRozan or Levine. They didn't have Levine last night. At home, I thought this would be a spot for the Bucks to get back at them for that loss in Chicago. I almost put a nice chunk of change on Bucks minus 12, and it looked like they were going to win in a landslide. They came out so crisp. It looked like a team that was agitated by the way they played in the in-season tournament last Thursday in Vegas. It looked like a team that was looking for some revenge for the way they played against the Bulls the last time they played them in Chicago against a short-handed Bulls team losing that game when they were when the Bucks were at full strength. They were up by 11 or 12 points early, and I was kicking myself. I was watching that a little bit on the iPad as the Packer game was going on. I thought, oh, damn, I should have put, put money on them. They're going to win this game by 40. And slowly but surely, the Bulls just got their way back into that game. The Bucks could never close the door. Dame had an awful game last night. He's been better shooting. He is a notorious slow starter. Who was the Brewer player for years there? Aramis Ramirez, was that it? He always batted 180 in the month of April and the first half of May. 
Dame Lillard, for all of his Hall of Fame exploits in his career, has been a notoriously slow starter, especially with shooting in Portland. We're seeing some of that this year. He's been better recently, but last night was awful. 3 of 17, 2 of 9 from beyond the arc. And the Bucks just let the Bulls hang around all night. Eventually, it has to go to overtime. Giannis had to assert his will in overtime and play 41 minutes in the process, but they do get a win, 133 to 129. Giannis was awesome again. 32 points, 12 boards, 6 assists, 2 steals, 9 of 13 shooting. He's shooting 62% from the field, 14 of 18, and clutch free throws late. Dame did have 14 points, 9 assists. He did distribute a bit. Middleton played 33 minutes. One thing that is different about the Adrian Griffin Bucks as opposed to the Budenholzer Bucks, and we'll see whether this pays dividends later on in the year or not. Budenholzer always tried to limit his horses, Giannis and Middleton and Drew at the time. He always kept them around 32, 33, maybe 34 minutes in a regular season game, especially a November or December regular season game. And the thinking was pretty simple. You don't want to burn them out in those games. You want to make sure they're fresh and healthy come playoff time. Well, Giannis is averaging more 35, 36 minutes a game. So that's two to three more minutes, which doesn't seem like a lot. But over the course of an 80-plus game schedule, if he plays in most of them, and playing 41, I don't know that Bud would ever have played Giannis and... Lillard, or in this case, what would have been Drew, if he would have played them 40-plus minutes just to get a December win. But AG does that. 41 for Giannis last night, minute-wise. Lillard played 41 minutes. Lopez played 40 minutes. Beasley played 40 minutes. Bobby was better off the bench. He had 17 points and 7 rebounds after the alleged dispute with AG. I don't think we ever talked about that during, what was it, Friday's podcast? I've been doing that a lot lately on this podcast where I'll preview something before we hit the intro, and I'll always forget one thing. That could be a bet. You could make a bet on that as a listener. Which of these three or four things is he going to forget about? I forgot about the Bobby Portis, the altercation that was reported after the in-season tournament loss where Bobby Portis apparently, reportedly, allegedly, went up to Adrian Griffin, and Griffin was talking about how they have to rebound better, and basically Bobby said, yeah, well, you've got to coach better. You've got to coach better down the stretch and set plays and design plays because they did look unmoored at the end of that game against Indiana where really nobody looked like they knew what they were doing in those final possessions. So Bobby's probably right, and AG was probably right. Griffin did address some of that pregame against the Bulls where he said, look, we're a passionate team. He says that a lot. (laughs) He says that a lot as a way to deflect any idea that maybe team chemistry is off or maybe the team isn't buying into what he's selling, he uses that a lot. Now, I'm okay with it right now. Oh, we're a passionate team. We care about winning. We're a passionate team. You can only use that so much, though, and he's already getting to the limit. If he keeps saying that in December a few more times, in January a few more times, okay, then then we maybe have some problems. He did say, oh, we're a passionate team. There was that, and Bobby did respond with a better game. He was awful in that game against Indiana, and then there was the report of that little dust-up or blow-up in the locker room. He was 7 of 11 from the field, had 17 points and 7 boards. A.J. Green was phenomenal last night. I would love to see more of him. 4 of 5 from beyond the arc, and he's shooting 43% now from distance, 12 points, 5 boards. Bucks are still waiting to get Connaughton back. They're still waiting to get Jay Crowder back to bolster that bench a bit. With the win, they are 16 and 7. And now their next matchup is one, remember last week that we talked about. I'm curious now to see how their approach is going to be with this Indiana team on Wednesday. They lost in Indiana early in the year. Then they lose again in the in-season tournament. And the Pacers are this kind of rising team in the East. They're young. They're hungry. They've got a top 10 player probably or top 12 player in the league right now in Tyrese Halliburton. We talked about that. Now that you've lost two in a row to them this year and you lost on that Vegas stage in the in-season tournament, didn't look great doing it. 
Now how do you approach this third matchup? I would expect the Bucs to take care of business and make a statement of their own on Wednesday, but I also expected that last night, and that didn't really happen, although they did get the win. We'll see what happens on Wednesday. It's a 7 o'clock tip time. Then they've got the Pistons at Fiserv Forum Saturday. And they're still at Fiserv Forum. They're at Fiserv Forum until December 23rd. We've talked about that. It's a long stretch of games at home. They've got Indiana Wednesday, Detroit on Saturday. Still at home with an upstart Houston team on Sunday. Wembenyana, Victor Wembenyana makes his Fiserv Forum debut with San Antonio next Tuesday. And then Orlando rematch. They've been good this year. That's next week, Thursday before the Bucks finally hit the road for New York on Saturday, December 23rd, and then the Christmas Day matchup on Monday, December 25th. That's Christmas Day. 11.30 a.m. that Saturday, 11 a.m. They're the first game on ESPN on the Christmas Day slate. I am interested to see how they come out, though, in this game Wednesday against the Pacers. And then let's wrap up on baseball. I'm not sure there's much to expound upon. Shohei Otani, we knew he was going to sign a record contract. There had been speculation that it was going to be in the 600 or 650 100 million dollar range. And you are kind of getting two guys. I'm not sure how much longer he's going to pitch, but you get a guy who was not a really high-end pitcher last year before he hurt himself. But 2 years ago, you had a guy that was top 5 Cy Young and an MVP or top 2 did he finish second in MVP voting and offensively 2 years ago. That's what you're bidding on. And an elite offensive weapon, the Bryce Harpers of the world, guys like that, they're getting three, $400 million, Mike Trout. And elite pitchers are getting 200 ish million. Well, if you're Shohei's agent, you're saying you get both of these things. You get an elite offensive weapon and you get an elite pitcher, or a very good pitcher, all-star caliber pitcher. So the idea was he might get 500-plus or 600-plus. Well, he gets $700 million from the L.A. Dodgers. He stays in L.A. He goes to the good side of L.A. Poor Mike Trout. Can we get Mike Trout out? Get him out of L.A. Get him out of the Angels organization. It is such a shame. I can't tell you. He is a generational talent. He is modern-day Mickey Mantle without the substance abuse, we think. I'm sure. It sounds like for sure. And nobody ever gets to see him, and he's just going to rot on that team and never make the playoffs again. He's played in one playoff game or one playoff series and didn't win a game, and that might be all he gets. Now Shohei is gone. I just don't see how he lasts his whole career there. Get him out of there. Get him out of the Angels organization and get Devontae out of the Raiders organization. We are wasting the back end of the prime of two generational talents. So he stays in L.A. He goes to the good side of L.A. where you can win a title. He signs this record deal, which still blows my mind. I remember when I was in high school, a senior in high school. Remember in 01, was it then? When, or 02? When Alex Rodriguez signed with the Texas Rangers, and he signed a 10-year, $252 million contract, and we almost lost our minds. $25 million a year? They're, play, they're paying a baseball player 25 and 10 years, 252. We couldn't wrap our minds around that. And 20 years later, it's 10 years, $700 million. The element that makes this even more fascinating, though, is the deferred money. Did you see this part of the article come out? So Shohei wants the Dodgers to remain competitive in terms of salary. He doesn't want his salary to jam up other things the Dodgers could do, even though the Dodgers have the number one payroll in baseball and are just throwing money around. I don't think they have any money worries at all, Shohei, but uh, okay, if you're going to be nice to us and defer your money, fine. He is only going to get paid $2 million a year over the life of his 10-year contract, and then he's going to defer $680 million to the 10 years after his 10-year contract is done. He is doing the reverse Bobby Bonilla. That's Remember the Bobby Bonilla contract, which is almost over. 
where Bobby Bonilla in the 90s signed that contract with the Mets and he got a lot of money, but then he also gets a million dollars, I think it is, or $2 million every July 1st for like 30 years, which is a genius way to do a contract because, you know, we I think a lot of us saw the ESPN 30 for 30 broke about athletes that burned through their money post-playing career. Bobby Bonilla made sure he wasn't going to do that. If he burned through the money he had, he knew he was going to get a $2 million payment on July 1st in perpetuity, basically, until like 2030. This is the reverse, where Shohei's taking a little bit of money over 10 years and then a lot of bit of money after that. He is actually going to be the least paid regular player on that team this year because he wants them to be able to sign other people in that 10-year window so they can maximize the title window. It's a great loophole. It annoys me greatly because this is not my team doing it. This is insane that they're going to get the most coveted free agent and they're going to basically pay him nothing. And now they can sign two or three other coveted free agents. I don't know when the CBA is up, the current CBA, because every baseball beat writer had this on their Twitter page yesterday that, yeah, they can do this. This is a loophole. There is nothing in the collective bargaining agreement that says anything about deferred money. You can defer as much money as you want if the player is willing to do that. More times than not, the player is not willing to do that, especially with that lump sum of money, $680 million. Shohei is willing to do it, and there's no rule against it. That has to be fixed. You cannot have no salary cap and then have the largest media market in the world signing premier players and having them defer their money to 10 or 15 years down the road so you can sign more players. You That's, come on, something has to be fixed there. I don't think the owners are going to get a chance to vote on this or say no on this because it just it's not in the current CBA, so what can you do at this point? It's a very creative way, though, to get out of paying all that money up front and jamming up whatever payroll you may have in place behind the scenes. We know it's not within Major League Baseball. Maybe the Dodgers have a certain amount they're not willing to go over. Well, he helps them out in a huge way by constructing this contract the way that he did. Crazy. Ten years, $700 million. Nuts. That'll do it for us here on your Tuesday morning, regular old Tuesday, not a victory Tuesday. We will get back after it on Friday. And we're going to jump right into Packers and Buccaneers and what the injury report looks like. What's that wide receiver room going to look like? Again, Packers three-and-a-half-point favorites. If we are hoping for playoffs, this is one you just have to get. You have to get this one, and you have to get Carolina. Let's get these two back-to-back. You get over 500. Put yourself in a pretty good spot for the stretch run for the final two games of the regular season. We'll be discussing that. We will break down whatever happened in the rest of the week for the Bucs, that Bucks pacers game on Wednesday. We'll discuss that as well. And it's bowl season. College football bowl season is upon us. We'll make some picks as well. One and two week. We had a losing week. It's been a while. We were one and two in our three NFL picks. We'll make picks on Friday as well. We'll chat with you then. Have a good work week.